Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, August 20th, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, the founder and executive director of the Design Museum. My regular co-host, Liz Pollock, is on vacation, so today I am flying solo. Today is a special day for the Design Museum, so we have a special episode for you. 11 years ago, on August 20th, 2009, my co-founder, Derek Cassio, and I started the museum. We were two 20-somethings with a crazy idea to make design more accessible, not by locking it up in a building that only some people can access, but by bringing it directly to the people in places they already go. We'd be the first, at least the first that we knew of, uh, nomadic design museum. And it worked. And it works because of the parallel between our approach and our content. Design is everywhere. So the design museum should be too. Over the years, we've popped up in all sorts of places from airports to schools, city halls, and right outside on the street. And of course, we're online. And now we spread the good design word through this podcast and our quarterly design museum magazine. Our mission is to bring the transformative power of design everywhere, and that's exactly what we're doing. On our 11th birthday here, I wanna thank all our amazing supporters, past, present, and future. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you to our members, subscribers, donors, sponsors, and grantors. And I wanna give a special thanks to the Design Museum team who works so hard day in and day out to make the Design Museum everything we know it can be. Okay, so today on this special episode, we're gonna talk about design uh, with one of our favorite guest co-hosts, George White. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at Cantina. George and I are gonna talk about design impact across many of the focus areas of the museum. Then we have a very special guest, best-selling author Scott Birkin will join us. He recently wrote and published a great book titled How Design Makes the World. So we'll talk to him about that and more. Uh, before we dive in with George, a few other things that are happening at the Design Museum. First, our latest Design Together activity is up on our website. Design Together is our collection of at-home design activities for all ages. The latest downloadable lesson is all about doing empathy interviews. Empathy is at the core of what makes design human-centered. So in this lesson, students will formulate interview goals and open-ended questions, and then they'll conduct an interview. Check it out at designmuseumeverywhere.org. Just scroll down a bit on the homepage and you'll see the link for Design Together. And our special event, Design Night Live, is coming up in just under a month on Saturday, September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It's going to be an awesome virtual design night with mixologists, live sketching, keynote speakers, prizes, and more. You're not going to want to miss it. So be sure to go to designnightlive.org to get your tickets. Okay, let's get into it. This week's guest co-host needs no introduction on this podcast because you've heard him chatting with us before. But I'm going to give him one anyway. George White is the Chief Innovation Officer at Cantina, where he guides their innovation efforts. He wears many hats, including designer, developer, and more. Oh, and one of those hats is also that he sits on our board of directors. George, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Sam. I, uh, I'm so happy to uh, hit my Michael Jordan dream somewhere in three-peat. Three-peat. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling good about this. I'm, I'm yeah. ready to shoot some threes, and I'm going go to go take it to the hoop, too. I love it. I love it. And this is a special episode, so I'm super excited to have you because today, Design Museum is 11 years old. <sighs> 11. That is, that is amazing. Like, yeah. I, I mean, so many brilliant years, so many amazing programs. Um, I'm super excited about this, and uh, I... I you know, having been involved with the museum for a few years now, uh, I am super excited about how we've kicked off the first year of the second decade. 
and I can't wait to see how the rest of it goes. The next nine years. With this being our special day, I'm hoping we can talk about design in general, like why it's important, talk about projects we're excited about. And so I'm gonna hit you with the first, just very difficult question of how do you define design? Oh man, this, this is the single worst question in all of design. Why do people keep asking this? Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting, um, you know, and, and later on we'll be talking about this, I'm sure some more, but I think the, the real thing is that um, design is inherent in what people do. Yeah. Everyone has some form of design in their lives. Um, you know, it's, it's, just a th it's just a thing that happens there. The problem is that, that over the last century or so, we've professionalized design. And with professionalization comes all of the things you'd want, right? All the training and all the skills, but it also comes with diversification. And it comes with a lot of splitting things up and getting finely parsed. And um, uh, as with any other professional form, at some point, you start to see fragmentation and specialization and narrowing. Uh, think about it this way. Um, you know, in 1850, someone was probably a doctor. Right. <laughs> right. Now you could be an internist, you could be a GP, you could be an oncologist, you could be, uh, you could specialize in pinky toes, you know, who knows, right? <laughs> and so, and so with that specialization um, comes this whole thing of, you know, it, it, you'll hear this in, in medical fields, for instance, somebody will be like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a GP. Well, you're, you know, you're, you're not really you know, deeply into everything. Yeah, I'm yeah, a surgeon. Right. Well, you're not really a doctor. You're just cutting into people, right? <laughs> and and I think that same thing is true in design. I think that that um, you know, it's what's happened, particularly, I think, since the digital revolution, since we started getting computers, start people started to design things that weren't, um, or consciously calling themselves designers of things that weren't physical, but but had a place. It had a thing. It had interaction models and all these other things that. Um, that's what that's what really did it. That's what that's what sort of started to, to change us. Because before that, you know, design might have been about functionality. It definitely was yeah, about maybe like craft. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but now it was we're digging into things where the designer and a designer and an engineer in some ways are you know look an architect has to know how materials work, right? But at the same time, they weren't working with those materials necessarily directly. Not every architect. Um, but a lot of times now, digital design, you have to work with materials and you have to know them in a way that, that and I know someone's going to be like, you're full of it. We're gonna, we're, someone will <laughs> blast me about this. But, yeah, but yeah. I, I do think that that there's a there's a thing about the idea that it changed our notion of what design was in the same way that um, the arts and crafts movement changed our notion of what design was, where we started thinking about design separate from art, right? We started thinking about functional aspects of artistic design. Um, and so I, I think that that uh, overall, design is the activity that human beings make to make things. Everyone designs. There are people who are professional designers, that is to say they're trained in, in a, either a broad or narrow field of the thinking about what problems a thing should solve and f who it's solving them for. I wonder if you could talk about, and you could couch it sort of like in the times that we're in, but you know, design feels more important than ever, but why? <laughs> It's a side effect of technology broadly, but it's also that that um, it's about the fact that human beings are rich. And that's <laughs> kind of a funny thing to say, mm -hmm. because obviously there are millions, billions of human beings on this planet who are impoverished. But right. but in the richest parts in the world, we're very, very rich, right? And so, so the aesthetic of the thing um, and how well it fits our need. Think about the fact that we all talk about uh, customer experience now. We talk about yeah, yeah. people's experience of a thing, right? Truth is, like, when it was you and that lion, you didn't really care that the spear was like, but 
but because we're rich, we're now able to make choices. And so in making choices, we need we need some information to help us make choice. And so I think design has become more important because of the choices we have, because there's so many resources that are now available to us. And yes, yeah, some of them are dwindling and they're hard to get it. But because look, you can buy a car. Think about think about Henry Ford, right? What did he say? Or Mame now have said, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can have Model T in any color you want as long as it's black. Well, it's because he didn't have the resources, right? He he couldn't he couldn't be like, I want to make one in like mint green or like some crazy yellow. He just didn't have the resources to do it. We do. And so as resources increase, the role of the designer as specifying the very fine detail matters. And this is true in whatever you look at. It's true in businesses and services. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that comes to mind for me is just the, so it comes with richness, but just the complexity of our world and the conflicting constituencies and conflicting aims that it just strikes me that design is one of the, and we talked about this on a past episode about problem solving that design is one of the only processes that actually is focused on the human but design and designers have empathy care about the person and that mm-hmm. is a uniquely designed thing or at least they're supposed to right they're supposed yeah, to care supposed to, in they're supposed way, to care when it's right. good yeah, yeah yeah exactly they're supposed to care the, as most as much as possible about the human being centered to use the human center design the human being centered in that whole thing but it's interesting too because um i I sometimes i do question that right like if i'm designing um for my dog Mm -hmm. if i'm designing a dog collar for my dog obviously i'm important but is it human centered anymore the dog's essentially centered yeah dog centered (laughs) design right like the dog's Mm -hmm. essentially being and and um has needs and concerns and thoughts and it and if, if i other them then I'm not doing the 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 it's and this is this is where you kind of can go back and forth between who's the user, who's the who's the who's the who's receiving the benefit, right? The dog doesn't really want to wear that smart collar that I designed. That's not the dog's interest. The dog the dog just wants to be a dog, but at the same time, the dog has interaction whether it's a harness or the leash or the food bowl or whatever. So 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 it's 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 to me it's the the um. Who are the sentient beings involved? Yeah, I would say design is on the side of life. Yeah, there you go. That's it. And and at least at least when we do it right. I mean, if you talk to Mike Montero, he will point out loudly and many times all the places where designers, uh, designers are human beings too. And we make the same mistakes and we do the same things that every other human being does. We have the same biases, um, hubris, uh, uh, lack of understanding and empathy at times it's it's ironic that i feel that's that's theoretically now built on empathy and built on the understanding the other is so good at at ignoring at separating and ignoring yeah totally yeah it always strikes me that design is like a conversation right but it's like a one-way when it's done poorly it's a one-way conversation where the designer makes all these choices and decisions as the first part of the conversation and then as the user they're also in the conversation, but they have no power in the conversation, right? right they're just like right. accepting what's being said in quotes. And yeah, that's what comes, I think, down to process and how design can help bring more voices in. So I was curious at Cantina, if you have like a design process that you all use, I've seen yeah. the design process illustrated in a hundred different ways, including like the squiggly line, you know, yeah, 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 illustration. The, the, the fuzzy front end. Right, exactly. where, where it's 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 just it's a mess. It's a ball of, of yarn, and then, and then somehow, somehow it magically becomes it magically happens. Yeah. yeah. So we we tend to talk a lot about um, the double diamond. So British Design Council uh, 
few years ago came up with this idea, but it's basically the idea is that there's a notion of diverging, converging, diverging, converging. And the first set of divergence is really around sort of, um, I like to think about the two diamonds as two spaces. One is problem space. Um, and, and this really is that thing I said before about like, what are you designing and who is it for? And then there's solution space. And that's like, okay, great. What am I designing specifically? Like, how am I really making this work? And that's, that's the territory of, of the more um, viability, feasibility aspect of the desirable, viable, feasible sort of framework that you can sometimes think about. Problem is that there's no one thing that works. But what we like to think about is, are we currently in the problem space or are we currently in the solution space? Are we currently trying to understand the problem space or are we trying to collapse it down to a solution, right? Coming to a brief, something that gives us a way to say what we're doing. And then once we understand it, how do we broaden out again? That second part of the diamond is you expand back out and say, well, great, now I know what I need to do what's the form it takes, right? This is where where the more sort of performative pro prototyping comes in, where you do user testing, where you do all these things where you're, you're kind of uh, co-designing ideally, exactly. And then you collapse that down into something you're gonna deliver. At some point, you're gonna say, great, I got it. I'm gonna ship something and somebody's gonna get it. And then, and then you're gonna iterate from there. We are very big on, on um, research primary research in particular, we like to do observational research because we think that, that um, you need to know the space whatever the problem is. And even things you assume you know, you, you don't probably know. I mean, unless you've really um, lived it alongside someone else and you've, you're good at observing them, you probably need to stop and be intentional about observing. I had a great conversation with someone a few weeks ago and um, uh, we were talking about their product and it's a pretty big car manufacturer. And they said something I thought was really brilliant. They were like, uh, we research our customers, but we don't understand them, which is Great, because that's like it's like oh you're doing the first part of design perfectly, and then you drop the ball somewhere, and that's that's to me is the big thing is that you have to continuously be reminding yourself what it was you were, you came into the room for. Well, you're striking, and that's why I love the double diamond. I've seen it; it's very cool. You guys use it. This the fact that design is all about collaboration and communication, and even just knowing as a group of people like where we are in the process, so that we're all kind of working towards the same thing. Because that's where you build on each other's ideas. But if one person is you know, ideating and diverging when the other person's thinking, we got to get to a solution. Man, if I think back to my career as a designer, those mismatches are probably 90% of the problems that yeah. I've had in my career. Absolutely. They're killer. One right? person they wants the final solution and you're like, no, 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 we're just diverging here. Right. Um, so communicating that process, I think, is extremely impactful. Well, that's that's actually one of the things that we find often is that people will come to us and they'll have an idea and, and they think they're ready to start. They think they're in the second time. They think they're in solution space. They're like, I'm ready to go. Uh, one of one of my favorite conversations ever was something where we didn't get hired <laughs> because um, we sat down and we, you know, yes, about tools and process. And we, we're just big on like grabbing frameworks. Sometimes we'll create them. Sometimes we'll use ones that exist. In this case, we grabbed a, a, a tool that came out of the, the Lean community called Lean Canvas, right? It's a business process canvas. And um, we basically, they'd given us this document and it's supposed to outline all the things that they want in their thing, right? Basically, they gave us a brief. And we went back and we questioned them on elements of their brief <laughs> in the context of this thing. We're like, well, how do you make money, right? How does it, and like, yeah, those, are, those shouldn't necessarily be design things, but then you start to realize they actually don't know who this thing is for. And that's actually the th real thing. It's not so much, how are you gonna make money or what's it gonna cost? That's important and you definitely, believe me, you can't ship something that make it a viable business without doing those things. But if you, if you ultimately uncover that you don't actually know who wants it, and, and and so sometimes design isn't just it's not just about the process of revealing who it's for or um, or what it's supposed to do. It's also revealing the shape of the solution. And a 
a huge role of the designer is communication. The designer's job more than anything else is to sit between the various parties involved and help them all get aligned on understanding what it is that they're trying to do and what the possible solutions are, how they'll feel and how they'll work. And that, that's, the, that's the user or the customer or the owner, that is the, the business, that is the buyer, that is the seller, it's the other designers, it's the engineers, it's everyone who's involved. The designer's job is to, is to give them all a shared view of that thing they're gonna make in the future. Everything is obviously designed, good or bad. So at the Design Museum, we sort of grouped all the design fields into seven categories. Arts and apparel, community, graphics, objects, media and technology, spatial and systems and strategy. So in these last couple of minutes, I choose, you know, your choice, dealer's choice. No, it's uh, yeah. player's choice. <laughs> all right, o objects is easy, right? Yeah. So um, anything in the OXO good grips line mm -hmm. is an amazing yeah. piece of design. Beautiful, beautiful objects. Beautiful objects and actually incidentally beautiful objects. That's what's actually great about them. One of the, the best, one of the reason I bring up that example, why everyone brings up that example is because the story is wonderful. Right. It's it's a couple trying to deal with the fact that the wife has intense issues with arthritis and can't work a can opener. That's the basis. That's their origin story. Yeah. So that's great um, object. What about and I know Cantina does a lot of this work systems and strategy. How have you all used design in that space or, or what's a project that you've seen out there in the world that really fits into that category? Yeah. So uh, the work that we're doing a lot now, a lot of that is work that's around organizational development. And I, I did a I did a webinar a few months ago about about sort of Stretch Armstrong, <laughs> and about the fact that organizations are inflexible, or or actually that's not quite fair. They can be very flexible. They can bend a lot, but they always revert to their same shapes. And I think that that one of the things that's really interesting it hasn't quite worked, but it's an interesting and intriguing idea um, is is sort of lean and agile systems. Right. And so this this notion of one of the things I think that if you talk to anyone who's in the innovation business, they will tell you about the idea that it's very hard to get businesses to change who they are. Um, we would talk to somebody they've got a it's a manufacturer business. And they have this 80 20 rule where they consistently and constantly look at what their customers are buying and they basically shift things from are this is our 80 percent product or a 20 percent product. It's a 20% product. You deprioritize de it. If it's an 80 percent product. You prioritize it. That's a system that they designed to constantly understand what they're making, prioritize it and ship it. And, and they do it in concert with their with understanding what their customers' needs are. And that to me is a is a spectacularly good system, well designed. And that's just about being intentional, right? And yeah. making decisions as just as you would if you're building a there's designing a building, you're just designing the, the elements of a system and obviously documenting it and probably training people on it as well. And many systems are so big that it's hard to have one person have enough leverage or even a small team to have enough leverage to be able to change that whole organization. And so yeah. I think that's that's one of the things that's that's most difficult about trying to figure out, um, you know, basically how to make a system that's well-designed. Yeah, very cool. Awesome, thanks, George. Uh, listeners, uh, you can read all about Design Museum's mission, including our seven design field categories and 12 design impact areas at designmuseumeverywhere.org. In the menu, just click About. And as always, be sure to check out George and his team's design work at Cantina. Visit cantina.co. George, stick around. Next up, we're going to bring author Scott Birkin into the conversation. If you like Design is Everywhere, you'll love our upcoming special event, Design Night Live. Join us on September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern for Design Night Live, 
a Saturday night filled with design sketches, games, prizes, familiar faces, a silent auction, and more. During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design, community, and innovation. We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about the designs they can't live without. Join Design Museum on September 19th for a night filled with inspiring company, hands-on demonstrations, and incredible prizes. Tickets are just $60 and they include a year-long membership. Plus, Design Museum members attend for free. Get your tickets today at designnightlive.org. And we're back, and we're joined by a special guest. Scott Birkin is a best-selling author and popular speaker on creativity, leading projects, culture, business, and many other subjects. He's written seven books, including The Myths of Innovation and The Year Without Pants, which I feel is pretty relevant for 2020. His new book, How Design Makes the World, came out earlier this year and goes deep into how design makes the world. It's a very relevant and appropriate title. Here is a clip from a short film from the How Design Makes the World book launch. The world needs designers because it needs people who don't ignore problems, but who try and solve them. Like how to keep a cut from getting infected. Or how to undo mistakes. How to keep food fresh. Or just how to give customers their ice cream in a way that's cheap and sustainable. The world needs designers because it needs people who understand the importance of making things easy to learn. Love it. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're psyched. Uh, George and I are big fans and we've read oh, yeah. your books. And uh, as I shared earlier with, with George, uh, today is Design Museum's 11th birthday. All right. So having you on is like a great way to celebrate. It is an honor excited. and a privilege. I hope to live up to that, uh, that, that bar. We'll see. Yeah, 11 years. <laughs> yeah, this is a big one. So first, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners about the new book. Like, What was the impetus to write it? And how does design make the world? I think that the world has some problems. I think that uh, <laughs> this year has shown us that uh, the world is not as well designed as most of us would hope. And um, I've been someone who's been teaching design for a long time. For, for many years, I was someone who designed things or managed people designing things. And it seems like a lens for how to look at the world and our lives that is really powerful and fun, but it's not well known. And the goal of the book was to write something that anybody could pick up. You don't need any background, no knowledge. You don't need to know what a font is or what composition means or anything. And within an hour or two hours, you now go, ah, now I know why that I hate using that microwave. Or now I know why I feel so happy when I'm in that restaurant or my favorite room in my house. So that was the ambition of the book, to give everyone a way to get in and start seeing the world in a better way. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk a little about because... Um... It's just structured really well with great examples. Can you give us a sense of like how you've structured that argument? Because I do feel like by the end of the book, you're like, yes, <laughs> design makes the world. <laughs> the, the goal was storytelling. This is part mm -hmm. of what designers know about how people's brains work, that uh, we're, we're, we're wired to understand narratives and stories. And a mistake that many people who are experts in things make is they want to share their expertise and here's a theory and here's a formula. And that's just not a good way to teach anything. Your yeah. best teachers at any subject, they'll tell you a story. You're like, oh, that's what happens next. Why'd that, why'd that blow up? Or in the case of the book, the opening story is the Notre Dame Cathedral. And part of the story about why it burned down has to do with a very simple design mistake that they made. But I put it in the context of something that's just this tragedy that didn't have to happen. And if more people understood these basic things about design, 
then um, <laughs> this, this is prescient relative to today. Yeah. You know, uh, who would have thought masks <laughs> might be important or that a pandemic could somehow happen and, um, you know, devastate our hospital system and have effects on our public safety net and other things. So, yeah, I think it really helps people relate to the material. And as George and I were talking, you know, design is just really hard to define. And I think that's where stories come in to help kind of like ground it in people's mind. But I'm going to ask you anyway, of, did you come to a good definition of design in the writing of this book? I've read a lot of them and the good ones are probably ones that you know, like um, Ray and Charles Ames had a good one, which is it was basically, I'm going to paraphrase it here, but it's basically sure. just you have an intention for rearranging things to serve a purpose. That was more or less what they mm -hmm. said. Anytime you rearrange stuff or arrange stuff with a purpose, you want to make your room feel more comfortable. You want to be more efficient at how you do your work tasks. Uh, you want to design a public transportation system so that it's safe and efficient and has good air circulation. Yeah. <laughs> um, like that, that's, those are intentions and you go about doing the work and that's a universal definition. That's part why I like it. It means that everybody does design. Yeah, that one's good. I keep thinking back and I forget who said this, but uh, it was just like design is just making decisions in a row <laughs> that lead to something, right? And yeah. so that's why we're all designers. And this is what George was talking about in our first segment. It's just core to human activity. But that also is what makes it difficult to explain to people. And I think that's what you've done really well in this book, based, like you said, based on the stories. It's, it's ubiquitous, so it's everywhere. And you're like, well, I don't. why do I need to define it? It's just like part of everything. Yeah, but that's this is where like um uh I hear that a lot uh often from designers about this book. They're like, "Why, you know, like, it's so obvious." I'm like, "No, no, it's not. Like it's no. obvious <laughs> that yes, you make decisions, but it's not obvious why one path of decisions is more likely to lead you to good results than another." Now you just start thinking and breaking it down into pieces and and those pieces I think are not that hard for most people to understand. It's just that designers historically have not been great about being ambassadors to the rest of the world. We like feeling like we're special magicians who have magical powers and like, you know, no, I don't want to explain it to you because that gives away the secret. You know, magicians yeah. don't do it. Why should I? But that doesn't bring more people in to appreciate what good designers do. And, totally. um, and also I think most people have the capacity to be better designers than they are. Yeah. Even if they'd never be hired to design a website or architect a building, uh, they can think more critically about why they like their closet design or why they like their spice rack. Yeah, I mean, that, as George knows very well, I mean, that's why we started the museum, which was to, you know, make design more accessible and just make people more aware because it connects with so much of your life. And it should not just be in the hands of, frankly, people that look like me, white dudes with dark rim glasses <laughs> and black turtlenecks. It's just like not the way it should be. And you're right. We just want to be these magicians, you know, behind you know, glass doors in our castles, but it's just not, no, not the best. No. And, the, and when you dig in, you don't have to do that much work to dig into the history of design you know how much more diverse the progress in design has been. Mm -hmm. It's just that totally. we have so many things in our culture that make it hard for those stories to get reflected and shared. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier, Scott, the idea that like, well, why designers ask this whole question of, um, well, shouldn't it be easy to understand what design is? It, it's a really fascinating question to me because if you if you're like you and me, you're on Twitter all the time. Was it every 
month, every two months, someone is fighting with Jared Spool about the definition <laughs> of design. And it's always other designers. So it's never it's never a non-designer jumping and going, you know, you, you don't know what you're talking about. It's always like someone like, no, 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 it's UX over here or it's it's you know, interaction design or it's industrial design. You're like, oh God, shut up. <laughs> it's 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 all it's all this thing. But I think it's really funny that the same designers will be like, what I do should be totally understandable to everybody else and it should be totally exposable. And yet I can't even define it to my fellow designers. And I think it's I think it's because actually the thing you mentioned before about storytelling, designers have gotten away in many places from telling each other's stories. There's something about the process of telling the story of design that gets people excited and aligned even before the thing exists. And so I love that you talk about things like like um, the design is reflecting the team. Right. And so who the storytellers are matters as much as what they're trying to tell. The people you bring in the room have a big deal to do with what ideas will make it out of the room. And so right. when we're talking about design, there's so many different cultures and heritages of different design thinking. And in most training in the US, you're taught about the Bauhaus, you're taught about Italian design, you're not taught about African design, you're not taught much about Japanese design who have actually far older and deeper heritages of how they philosophize about design. That if you're really gonna do good work, those should be some of the stories you learn. Uh, yeah. I wanted to go back to what you were saying, though, critiquing designers on Twitter, because I think there's something reflected in there that the mission of what you folks are doing or what, Sam, you're doing is um, I'm so a huge fan of it because you're ambassadors, you're bringing people in. Right. And so much of the culture in design, and this goes back before Twitter and before tech design, is this weird insecurity, but I want attention. Right. I want to be known as an artist, but I don't want you to learn too much because I'm afraid you might take my job. So there's this passive aggressive tendency in design. And I think a lot of design museums, like the MoMA has exhibits they've done about design and they fall into the trap of making design art. You go into the museum yeah. and you see forks on the wall and really? you're like, how can I evaluate the design of a fork if I have to look at it on a wall? I can't hold it. I can't put it in my mouth. Isn't that mm -hmm. what it's for? It's for eating. And there's this quality that museumship and design professional societies have where they're gold plating this idea of design, which makes it inaccessible. It doesn't bring people in. And I think that for most of the goals that we all have for a better world, I mean, we in the largest sense, and then designers for the role of design in that, we have to bring people in. We have to be friendly. We have to say, hey, check this out. Here's a fork. Here, here's the best fork that's been designed. Try this one out. Here's the worst fork. Try that. What's the difference? How'd you, what'd you notice? Like, and I was saying something earlier, Sam, about the idea that um, the designer's job, the real, the real role of the professional designer is to sit in the middle yeah, and to be a facilitator of the communication between other people until they don't need to be in the middle anymore. That's the part I left out, which is the, yeah. a, a true professional designer, their job is actually eventually to disappear. If they do, the, if they do their jobs right, whether, whether it's in that fork or it's in that process, <laughs> at some point, they're not needed anymore because the thing is, the thing is now... So it's sustainable. It's, it runs on its own. It does its job. I know you did a ton of research around this and there's so many amazing design examples and stories. So could you share a few of your favorites? My favorite one, given everything that's going on, is about, um, it starts really with um, jet aircraft and escape mm. seats for jet aircraft. And there was a designer who worked at, um, I either worked at, I, I think he worked at BMW or Volvo. Anyway, he was working on jet aircraft escape systems, like the escape ejection seats. And uh, it was Volvo. He eventually, he eventually worked for them. And he realized they realized they wanted to make the car safer. It's late 1950s. And so they, they said, hey, jet aircraft, cars, people in the seats, cockpits, got to be pretty much the same. 
So they hired him and he did all this work and he had this great quote about the work he was doing as he did user research on what car drivers would be okay with for safety equipment. And he had a quote that went something like, well, these aircraft test pilots would do just about anything not to die. They'd strap in their vest, tent vest, a helmet, everything. But actual you people, consumers, will do almost nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to come up with – he had all this great technology that could save you from 12 Gs going upside down in a, you know, a, a, a jet aircraft. But he had to convert that into a simple system that ordinary people would use. And he did that. The three-point seatbelt is effectively – the three-point seatbelt we have today is Niels Boland's design. And there were other ones around. He simplified it, applied human factors knowledge. And when you pull that strip across your chest and tuck it into your hip with one hand – so you have yeah. a cup of coffee, a hand for your coffee free. That's because of him. So Volvo adopted the seatbelt, but they found it wasn't all that popular really, that no one really wanted it because they weren't afraid yet. They didn't think cars would be dangerous. But little by little, Volvo got attention for it, and they made it mandatory in their cars. And they even promoted it enough that they gave the patent for it away to other car manufacturers for free because awesome. Awesome. they felt like, hey, this is for society's benefit. People should not die for no need. But no one wanted it. And um, the car companies didn't want it. The car companies thought that people didn't have a need for it, they didn't demand it. So it took a long time. It took about 20 years. The mm. book goes into detail on all the specific steps, but it yeah. took about 20 years before it became something really on the radar of society. And that's some of what I see in what goes on now about how we think about design. That designers are so often focused on the literal invention part of design. They invent the thing and it's better. And they feel like once it's better, that's it. I'm done. I get an award yeah. now. They're going to make movies about it. I me. did it. <laughs> I did it. I made the thing. Yeah. And that's not the case in history. History very rarely works that way. There's who's going to pay for it? Who's going to evangelize it? Who's going to who's going to who's going to require it in products? Who's going to market it? Apparently, when th the, there's a magic number, when three and a half percent of a population protests something, it changes. It's never happened that three and a half percent of a population haven't protested something and it hasn't changed the thing. So there's a tipping point. It's actually very small, right? I mean, three and a half percent, not even five percent. If you can get, if you can get a certain number of people to to feel personal connection to the thing, and be vocal about it, it tips society over. When you when you talk about the story of design overall, and everybody is involved in this, how do you think about the the various roles that larger groups and patterns society play in getting people not just to adopt design, but also understand whose responsibility design might be? It's multifaceted. I, th I think it, it, it depends on the specific thing that you talk about. But when you dig into almost any private enterprise thing, there's a public infrastructure thing underneath it. Like the whole tech mm -hmm. sector is very proud of itself. Uh, and in some cases, for very good reasons. But uh, internet, sorry, not private sector. Uh, roads, not private sector. Amazon delivers all their stuff on the roads that taxpayers pay for. And so there's always a connection between these layers that and America and our culture is so proudly capitalistic, and capitalism has its advantages for sure. But the dismissal of the dependency of those capitalistic enterprises on the social structure that is given to all um, is always diminished, and uh, that's a problem. And we're seeing it. We're seeing the consequences of that now. Is that a lot of our society doesn't understand why taxes are important, and now we're looking at well, there's no safety net. We can't do what we cannot do what other countries have done because we haven't invested in it. Could we have? Absolutely. We have this design community and entrepreneurial community who come up with ideas and develop and that's great. And then there's the business world that either adopts those or funds them and that's important. And then there's society and that includes government. And those three pieces have to work in conjunction 
to really make what we want in a world. Should professional designers, because obviously everyone designs, but should professional designers always be saying, hey, wait a minute, there's an interdependency here, or you're not looking at this from an angle that maybe is really important to look at? I think absolutely. And I think that you mentioned, you alluded to Twitter, the problems of design Twitter. And one common theme, thematic discussion that happens on Twitter for designers is driving by some piece of UI, a parking lot meter, or some software you download, or government form, and dissecting it as if the designer involved, the literal designer of it, had complete carte blanche control of what would be in it. And how stupid they were. They put this there. and And that is a very shallow view of design. The designer who's critiquing it probably has had a bad client or had a, a budget really well below what was needed and had to do the work anyway. Yet when we look at other stuff in the I world- I know, it evaporates. It's poof. We imagine that this person had all the power and all the money and all the time and and screwed it up. And what is that? Like This gets back to what you were saying before about this weird insecurity that designers have about how we talk. We don't want people to know too much that somehow we're very mean and shallow in how we evaluate other designs in the world. And that to me is a design immaturity. So obviously the Design Museum's mission, the mission of this book is to get as many people to understand and think about design as possible and see where it is in their lives, how it affects their lives, what it's doing. Uh, recognize that design is political. If you quote Mike Montero, you know, it's it's design design is 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 ever present. So how do you do a job that's that hard? Right? How do you how do you how do you do that job well? Because I think I think the book lays out a really good set of circumstances for the idea that design is everywhere. It's ever present. It's really important. It's it's a communal activity. But we have so many examples. We all run into it every single day as educators, as as you know, designers, um, as just observers. Stuff's not good. <laughs> like so, how how do we how do we really get better? Yeah, I um, my my first thought about that, it might not be my best thought or one that I'm going to agree with in a minute from now. But my first thought, <laughs> my first thought is that the world is not that badly designed. Like we, we we're biased here. We know so much about the potential for things. And when I drive on the road in Seattle, which historically has not so good traffic, it's a little bit better now. People, less people are driving, but still, I'm driving at 55 or 60 miles an hour right behind someone, and the whole like it's amazing to me that that works. Generally, yeah. generally it yeah. works that it people does. can drive a vehicle that weighs a ton and a half going 60 miles an hour, two feet apart, and sh- and gets off. People get off at exits, and they're, I'm, it's amazing, right? And then right now, look at what we're doing right now. Um, across across a nation, <laughs> the, we have this window. We're talking to each other in real time, and it hasn't crashed yet. Um, like it's amazing that. I try to hold on to the notion that it can be amazing and terrible at the same time. Yes. That yes. there's so much room for it to be better. But considering where we have been and I have running water in my house, I have electric lights, that it's amazing and terrible at the same time. And that kind of – I don't teach that way. It's harder to keep to, – it's hard enough yeah, to convince like people to – Yeah, it's that from your brain. Yeah. But when, when you're thinking about it and you're, you're trying to reason with yourself and sort out your position relative to the world – that is a way you have to think as a designer of recognizing it's not all bad and it's not all great. It's such, it's multi-factored. But um, 
that, that's my first thought. I'm holding on to it now. No one's poked it no, apart yet. I think yet, there's so. an importance of positivity in design of like knowing that there's a, even to ask that question, George, of like, we're just, how can we make it better? I had a professor at RIT. It was like, it is the role of designer to make things better. And I like totally bought into that. So not true all the time. <laughs> right, <laughs> but right. if we can hold to that notion, I think that keeps us at least on a path because better is always going to be something different. You know, right now, maybe it's about accessibility and equi equity, but it's going to change as our world changes. And yeah. I think the George. role of the modern designer is not to make it worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's why I wonder if it, if we could use some of our creative capacity and capitalist capacity to like, okay, we got the toilets. Like they make sense. They work. Like, can we move our, you know, energies elsewhere? Because, you know, there are people who, do need and there's problems that need to be solved but that's like it's very complex well well it, i don't think that it is i think it's been a fascinating thing even before this year about how much pride the design community has we make the world better we make the world better and then little by little you realize you're making food delivery apps which up until recently was a very privileged thing uber you're making tools that make life more convenient for people whose lives are already pretty convenient that's a lot of the noble innovative work in the tech sector is um it's really a very narrow application of design skill and as a community we don't do much to talk about and reward and highlight design for good um there are a few groups that do and, pro and promote it but that's not at the heart of why people go to design school those aren't the case studies that are usually studied there so i think you make a good point about um about calling some honesty or authenticity about the high-minded ideals designers have i'm making the world better and you're poking at it which i think is a righteous thing to do say wait wait you're making it better for who and in yeah. what way and what's the best use of if you have this amazing skill as a designer who does who benefit the most from that it's probably not the latest update to mac os yeah. right. or some new thing on your phone it's probably what both you've been talking about this wider gap in society of bringing people instead of the gold-plated toilet people, there's people who have, you know, a regular toilet or no toilet. Um, wouldn't your design talent be more the, the scale of your impact? Um, making the world better would be so much bigger. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, be sure to grab and read your copy of How Design Makes the World. It's a really fun book on design. Everyone can enjoy. Uh, you can get a copy and read Scott's great blog, on his website, scottberkin.com. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that impacted us or others in some meaningful way. I'll start us off this week. So today is not only Design Museum's 11th birthday, but it's also my ninth wedding anniversary. That's right, folks. Nicole and I got married on August 20th, exactly two years after I founded the Design Museum. Nicole is amazing in everything that she does, uh, whether it's being a mom, but especially in her ceramic tableware. And she's really good at baking and she makes me chocolate chip cookies. So Nicole, I'm dedicating this weekly dose of good design to you. I know you're listening. Uh, so a senior industrial designer at Tesla named Remy Lebec redesigned the ubiquitous chocolate chip. And so as he says, the 80-year-old teardrop shape isn't a design shape, but a product of an industrial manufacturing process. So he worked with a company called Dandelion Chocolate, 
to create a new shape and it's very cool looking. It's kind of like a flattened diamond and it's square. It's sort of like flat and faceted. And I think that's what they call it, the faceted chip or something like that. Uh, the design brief from Dandelion was to make the best chip for the experience of tasting chocolate. And this new chip is all about surface area. And I love this. Remy has done a couple of projects with Dandelion and he's always getting paid in chocolate. So happy anniversary, Nicole. I know you're listening. So hidden in the very back of our fridge on the bottom shelf in a brown paper bag is a bag of these chips. And I hope you enjoy them. George, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Now I don't have anything nearly as personal as that. Although my wife and I did just have our 15th wedding anniversary last that's week. That's awesome. So we're, Congrats. We're, you know, we're and, and 24 years together. So that's amazing. Doing something right, I think. Yep. Um, so mine is actually, uh, again, much less awesome and heartfelt than that, but still cool. Uh, so Simon Wardley's Wardley Doctrine. Um, and this is a tool that I love. So if, if you don't know, Simon Wardley, um, he was a, a CEO, he's now a, a researcher, and he has created Wardley maps, which are these, uh, if you don't know them, frankly, they're indecipherable. But once you do know them, they're amazing maps of thinking about sort of how something moves from process of sort of innovation to commodification um, and, and how businesses work. But one of the things that's really interesting is Simon does a lot of talking about how he people he has these interesting dialogues with himself about sort of like you know what do you think about X and he'll he'll respond, and um, one of the things that he's come up with is this notion of thinking about how uh, all of the parts of a business or an organization work together, and he's created this Wardley doctrine and and Steve Perkis actually came up with a variation and Simon's mapped it all out and it's beautiful not necessarily because it's it's um, uh, aesthetically pleasing. It is to some extent when you see it in use and once you learn it. But what's really nice about it is it's a it's a it's a design tool for thinking about your thinking. It's a meta tool. Oh, that's awesome. And I and I love those types of tools. Those are the frameworks are my thing, right? Because er, you can always have ideas, but it's really great. I like to think about it. someone pointed out to me the other day that I, I'd like to think about things in geometrical ways, right? I'm a very <laughs> uh, uh, spatial person. And I like to think about design problems as these big multifaceted crystals that you, they're multidimensional. You literally can't, they're like hypercubes. You can't see right. them because right. they don't fit in three dimensions themselves. But frameworks are the way of slicing things so you can just get enough view to be able to see it and then understand it. Problem space of identification, and then you can start to understand how you might solve things. And Wardley's doctrine is a beautiful picture of how to slice an organization and understand what needs to happen within it so that you can actually change it. Oh, so that's that's, that's so my cool. little dust oh, design. I can't me. wait to check that out. I need that. I love it. George, so good. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you again to George White and Scott Birkin for joining us this week and celebrating 11 years of the Design Museum. As always, we'll post links to some of the things we discussed, including Scott's new book, on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, be sure to grab tickets for Design Night Live on September 19th. That's when we'll really celebrate the 11th anniversary and have a giant design party online. Visit designnightlive.org to get your tickets. It's free for members, so I want to see every member online on the 19th of September. As always, we'd love to hear from you on social media where you can share your ideas for future episodes. Find us on Twitter at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can search design museum everywhere. Be sure to subscribe to the Design is Everywhere podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribing, rating, and leaving a review helps boost our new show so more people find us and listen. If you enjoy the show and you want to do something for Design Museum's 11th birthday, share this podcast with a friend. I'd really appreciate it. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. 
were edited by David Green. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. From the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.